0: Okay, I want to, in the time I've got, I want to just try to outline three main types of trade unions which I think can be identified in British history and which are in fact talked about a lot more in that book United We Stand. Uh, probably all of the types of trade union I'm going to talk about will be familiar to you already, but I think it might be worth just uh, putting, them to, putting them side by side and uh, presenting a kind of more systematic comparison uh, as a background for the discussion about what trade unions are today and what they might be in the future. Uh, the first and oldest of the main types of trade unions in Britain is, of course, the craft union. Um, there's a, an even more important book than the ones by somebody else called um, Travelling Brothers by R. E. Leeson, which I really recommend if, if you haven't already read it. And I think since his, his work, it's virtually indisputable that craft unions grew out of the earlier medieval craft guilds separating from them and becoming more like recognizable trade unions sometime in the 17th century. The main difference was that the guilds included small masters alongside the skilled workmen, but otherwise their functions were the same. They aimed to keep a vigilant eye on the conduct of the trade at a local level, maintaining traditional workplace practices and monitoring the arrival of new migrants. They aimed to organise the movement of their skilled members to districts where there were more jobs available, acting as a kind of occupational labour exchange. And they aimed to provide relatively generous welfare benefits for the support of their individual members. Maintaining financial solvency for the provision of these benefits was then the main basis of craft union calculations about which other workers to admit to membership and which other bodies to amalgamate with. They could often see that they had a real interest in recruiting further down the hierarchy of skill to include semi-skilled maybe even some workers that might be classified as unskilled but they sometimes reckoned that even if that would be advantageous from a bargaining point of view it would not be financially sustainable from a benefit provision point of view so what i want to emphasize here is that craft unions were not intrinsically closed or elitist organizations they were based on what they thought were reasonable calculations The Boilermakers Society, for example, which is the one I know best, covered the main iron and steel workers in the shipbuilding industry in the late 19th and early 20th century. It started out uh, just including in its members the platers who cut and shaped the plates and the riveters who joined them together with hot metal bolts. But the Boilermakers' sighted leaders realised that their bargaining strength would be increased if they could include more of the workers involved in hull building. So they opened their ranks to include less well-paid groups generally regarded as less skilled or unskilled. There were a group called the Corkers who sealed the gaps between the plates. And there were the Holders-Up who assisted the Riveters and then later Sheet-Iron workers who were kind of a parallel group. Uh, this practical and in many ways ambitious strategy then laid the basis of the Boilermakers' ability to capture the new technology of welding from the 1930s onwards. In some contrast, though, the Union did not admit the people who were called the Plater's helpers, because there was, not because they were unskilled, but because there were too many of them to support on the welfare funds. Whereas there would have been one holder up for every two riveters, There were usually six or seven helpers for every plater. Uh, Although this separation between the platers and their assistants did lead to friction at first in the late 19th century, it did not produce deep-seated hostility. And the two groups ended up in the same organization when the boilermakers eventually merged with the municipal and general workers in 1982. One of the main reasons for including other groups of workers when it was financially viable to do so was to consolidate the bargaining position of the craft unions, for they didn't merely provide welfare benefits for their members, they also represented them in adversarial relationships with their employers. Just as had been the case with the earlier craft guilds, the aim was to regulate the amount of work required and the amount of pay that was received for it, but directed now against the employers rather than the merchants. In order to maximise their position, it seems to me the craft unions used two fundamental methods. Firstly, the restriction of entry to the trade, again, not out of some irrational snobbish self-regard, but so as to raise wages through the relative scarcity of skilled labour. And secondly, the encouragement of labour mobility between firms and districts, either to put a general pressure on employers by making sure there weren't too many workers in any given place, or to use them as a way of what they used to call strike in detail, that is simply advising the members not to work for certain firms if they thought they were uh, significantly below the the wages and conditions they should have been. Thus, on the one hand, the Boilermakers Society was willing to compromise with employers over wages at times when it seemed that the state of the labour market made it unavoidable. But on the other hand, it was prepared to go to great lengths through assertive unilateral local action to achieve favourable agreements over the length of training, the ratio of apprentices to journeymen, and the issuing of formal indentures or certificates of skill, for these would be the basis of its members' longer-term bargaining position. Thus, it was on the basis of this institutionally imposed scarcity of labour that the craft unions were able, when necessary, to mount successful strikes for higher wages. There were other large groups of workers for whom this craft model of organisation was not appropriate. Although they didn't always realise it straight away because it was, the, it was the, the, first, uh, the first model that was available. Some of the workers in what I would call process industries such as coal and cotton did indeed have high levels of skill. But they were different from the craft workers because they were tied to one sector and indeed usually to a particular workplace, a pit or a mill. Since they couldn't easily move off to work elsewhere, they couldn't use labour mobility to improve their bargaining position, and and since moreover the skills in these industries were picked up by observation on the job, it was very hard uh, to think about having restricted numbers of apprentices, and there were large numbers of potential blacklegs already in place among the workers who had been working near them and watching them for some time. Alexander Macdonald of the Scottish Coal Miners, who I introduce here as one of the, I think one of the great overlooked heroes of British trade unionism. He was one of the first trade union activists to break through these barriers to a new form of organisation. He began as a boy in the coal fields of Lanarkshire, took Latin and Greek classes in the evenings to a high enough standard to be admitted to Glasgow University, from which he graduated in the late 1840s with not only a degree, but a small fund of savings invested in the stock market. On the basis of this private income, he then devoted himself to organising his relatives and former workmates, at first using the well-established methods of the craft unions, such as welfare benefits, an emigration scheme and so on. However, none of these had the desired effect, and the Scottish miners just couldn't build up a wide enough membership and a large enough income from subscriptions to avoid costly strike defeats and major wage reductions. And it was here that MacDonald's higher education kicked in, for he began to find that he was successful in taking legal actions against mine owners in the courts, under the existing laws that were called anti-truck laws to prevent employers from forcing their workers to spend their wages in company shops. And he then concluded that the way forward for workers in the process industries was to secure further favorable national legislation over such issues as shorter working hours and improved safety. Indeed, once this strategy began to emerge, The stability and geographical concentration of the workforces in the process industries which made craft union organisation difficult for them actually became a positive advantage because the miners and the cotton workers were able to dominate the electorates in their parliamentary constituencies and get their own MPs elected to Parliament. Macdonald himself was one of the first elected as Liberal and Labour MP for Stafford in 1874 with his expenses covered by the Scottish miners and with some claim, it's kind of a joke in a way, but it's an interesting joke to make, I consider him as the first leader of the Labour Party. While this was indeed the emergence of a new sort of trade unionism, it was no more based on working class opposition to capitalism than craft unionism was. Although they did at times organize remarkable national strikes, the bedrock of the organization of these unions rested on government intervention. Thus, the eventual nationalizations of British industry, which came after 1945, were not the beginning of a new society, but rather the culmination of a long tradition of pressure through existing political channels on behalf of particular groups of workers. There was no element of workers' participation in management, and the unions continued in the same old adversarial bargaining role, as if nothing very much had changed. And of course, the process workers' unions were in their own way occupationally specific. Each one separately represented the interests of coal miners, cotton operatives, and steel workers. As a result, when those industries went into long-term decline over the course of the 20th century, the once mighty unions went with them. It's a sad story, but I'll just give you a few details. In 1920, there were 1.2 million coal miners and almost a million members of the Miners' Federation of Great Britain. Today, there are no more deep coal mines. Open-cast mines employ only a few thousand men, and the National Union of Miners has an active membership of around 100 many of whom are actually paid officials. Similarly, in cotton in 1920, there were over half a million workers, and the powerful spinners union had 50,000 members. Today, the Lancashire textile industry has just about disappeared, and indeed, the union was formally dissolved in 1970. Even the healthiest survivor from this era, the steel industry, grew for much of the 20th century, but only to see its terminal decline postponed. The workforce has fallen from around 300,000 in the 1970s to under 20,000 today, and the massive Iron and Steel Trades Confederation formed in 1917 and growing to over 100,000 members has now been replaced by community with a total of only 20,000 members, including many in other industries. This decline of the what I call seniority unions in the process industries is one of the most remarkable changes in the British trade union movement to have taken place over the course of the 20th century. And here I mention, it's not directly connected, but it's closely linked, alongside that decline of largely male uh, mass trade unionism has been the rise in the proportion of trade union members who are women, often with a higher education, leave that as a kind of aside. So now we have two main historic types of trade unionism in Britain, both based on occupational interests and loyalties. Craft unions organising specific groups with clearly defined skills, which could be transferred between firms involved largely in assembly work, such as joiners, painters, engineers, and electricians. And what I would call seniority unions, because of the way their members' skills were traditionally picked up, aiming to organise all the workers in particular process industries such as miners, textile workers and railwaymen. But this (coughs) still left large numbers of other workers unorganised, especially among those who did not so much produce things as move them around or provide the public utilities required by the new urban environment. So here I'm thinking especially of transport workers carters and lorry drivers, sailors and dockers, gas workers, also tram and bus drivers. As the the reserves of rural labour began to dry up in the late 19th century, the informal bargaining power and prospects of trade union organisation among these groups in the cities improved because there weren't so much replacement labour coming in from the countryside. Partly because so many of them were working in the centres of the large cities, And partly because it was a surprise to contemporaries to see them becoming more assertive, these workers' industrial disputes in the late 19th century seemed highly dramatic and received a good deal of press coverage. This was also partly because some of their early organizers were self-declared socialists who used the rhetoric of class struggle in their public statements and in their choice of confrontational tactics. However, this can be highly misleading if it's taken too much at face value for the longer-term sustainability of organisations thrown up by the so-called new unionism, still depended on particular occupational circumstances. Those that survived the initial burst of enthusiasm in the late 1880s and early 1890s tended, uh, firstly, to focus on specific groups who did the more, like the uh, stevedores, for example, who did the more specialised shipboard work on the docks. Secondly, actually, although they criticised the craft unions, they also themselves set up rudimentary welfare benefits, at least for accidents and funerals, because that was the only way they could retain members. And thirdly, what became a distinguishing feature of these kinds of unions was that they began to scoop up random groups of workers from other unions that were collapsing. This remained characteristic of the structures of the so-called general unions as they became better established over the 20th century and uh, a boost to their growth, a really important boost to their growth were the two world wars, labour shortage during the two world wars. Actually the so-called general unions did not become general unions for the whole workforce and not even for all of the less skilled in particular industries. So I think their nature is better captured already in the, ni- in the early 20th century by calling them federal unions, not because they had federal constitutions, but because they recruited loose collections of different types of workers. The transport and, well, here I'm probably talking, to, <laughs> I don't need to say any of this, but I'll carry on. The transport and even particularly in this building, the Transport and Generals Work, General Workers Union, for example, in its heyday had trade groups, most notably for the docks, waterways, passenger services, and administrative workers. In 2007, after protracted negotiations, the TGWU merged with Amicus, already an amalgamation of mostly craft unions with the engineers as its backbone to to form Unite the Union, now the biggest of Britain's unions, with almost 1.5 million members, and inevitably a very complex internal arrangement of committees for distinct sectors. The TGWU's main start rival was a general and municipal workers' union, which anticipated the formation of UNITE by over 20 years, when it amalgamated with the craft boilermakers and renamed itself the GMB in 1982. Now with over half a million members, it continues with its traditional method of dealing with its highly diverse recruitment through a robust structure of regional organisers, regional committees, and regional councils uh, for the, the various regions of the country. For the sake of completeness, we should also consider the third of Britain's massive unions, the relatively new Unison formed in 1993, now with around 1.3 million members, covering all types of workers in the public sector and divided into distinct service groups, local government, healthcare, education, police, community, uh, water, environment, energy, private contractors. Alongside the disappearance of the seniority industries and organisations and the rise of female membership, this is the third outstanding feature of the current trade union scene in Britain. The emergence of three massive federal conglomerates with each of them, each of them in their own way still, still based in, to some extent on distinct occupational interests, which we might broadly characterise as transport, manufacturing and the public sector. I think two points stand out from this brief survey of a big history. Uh, First, that the conglomerate unions of today are not new, but are part of a relatively long-standing type of what I would call federal organisation, which has distinctive strengths and weaknesses and which can be studied historically. Uh, Second, that there are two other long-standing types of unions, sometimes misunderstood and now usually overshadowed, which we might label in a more general way the occupational and industrial models. And it might be worth suggesting in conclusion something about the potential strengths of these two rather overshadowed models. For example, what about thinking of the craft or occupational model for IT workers, many of whom are in effect the skilled engineers of our time and bear in mind here that historically skilled assembly workers in britain in the past were effectively on zero hours contracts and had many of the features of the self-employed but that didn't stop trade union organization so as opposed to the assumption that trade unionism should be about national strike action and pressure for state intervention a revival of this model could focus on specific groups of workers building on occupational pride Aim to control recruitment and training and to squeeze all the advantages out of a highly mobile workforce while providing generous welfare benefits. And what about the seniority or industrial model for service sectors such as education and health, which we could see as process industries, processing people rather than raw materials? This might look more like what trade unionism is widely assumed to be, emphasising large scale collective pressure within both the employment relationship and the political process, but it would focus on only one sector. For example, an organisation which covered every sort of teacher working with young people, from those in nursery schools to those in universities, might be able to use its collective muscle in support of specific groups, and would surely be well placed to develop a vision for education as a whole which could provide both the basis for political lobbying and for unilateral initiatives to reshape the services provided by its members. At the very, as a, a, light, a light-hearted concluding comment, at the very least, these types of trade unions would surely make it easier for workers to know which organisation to join. And that's it. Well, um, if that was an encouraging last <laughs> <lot of laughs> <lot of laughs> sentence, thank you for that. Uh, can we thank Alistair uh,